comes from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 through 10. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to, to betray Jesus to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. Cheers. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, uh, one of the four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that begin the New Testament and tell the story of Jesus, how he came into the world, uh, the virgin birth of Mary, how he began his ministry. He was baptized. He went out in the desert, was tempted, how he went to the north of Israel, and gathered together disciples, began to teach them, perform miracles, signs of who he was. And then we saw in the middle of the gospel a whole change. He leaves Galilee and he comes south to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And we've seen him three times enter that, the temple there. First time he enters, he's welcomed uh, as a king, as the Messiah. Uh, this is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, Jesus riding on a donkey and being acclaimed by all the pilgrims uh, there for Passover. We've seen him enter the temple and challenge the practices of the temple. They had turned the temple courts into a marketplace, a place of money changes and uh, merchandise. We've seen him the third time enter Jerusalem it was his habit to go to Jerusalem and then leave and uh, stay in Bethany. The third time he enters Jerusalem and challenges the leaders, or they come out to challenge him. Now he is outside Jerusalem. He is down the hill from Jerusalem at Bethany, uh, at the base of the mountain there. And we're coming here to the climax of the gospel. Because the next time that Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's going to enter as a prisoner, bound on his way to the cross. So this is really building towards the climax. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. As I said, this is a climax. Jesus, with his ministry, and particularly his challenge to the leaders in Jerusalem, has provoked a series of events that are now being set in motion. There is plotting and scheming. 
Jesus is on his journey, the journey he started up in Galilee, and it's going to culminate in the cross. And we've seen he's predicted that. If you recall, Jesus predicted that he would go to the cross. He predicted that the temple would be destroyed. He predicted the church age. Although things are happening behind the scenes, they are not mysterious or unknown to Jesus. This was his mission. This is his plan. This is what Jesus' ministry was all about. In fact, the fact that it is Passover recalls the way that God rescued Israel from Egypt through Passover and with Moses led Israel out of slavery. Now Jesus is going to lead God's people, his new holy nation, out of bondage to a new age, to a new community, the Christian church. And everything is happening right here, right now. Verse 2. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Estimates are that there were somewhere close to 30,000 people uh, living in Jerusalem at that time. A little smaller than Hoboken, but comparable. But at uh, the time of festival, time of pilgrimage, that swelled to 200,000 people. Imagine 200,000 people in Hoboken. A bigger place, by the way, than Jerusalem. And so the potential for riot disorder was considerable. The people had acclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, as the returning king. And so the authorities are nervous. They would much rather uh, get Jesus secretly, privately, with treachery, rather than some kind of public confrontation. And also, notice this story. It's all about the woman who anoints Jesus. She's anonymous in this story. Peter, doesn't, uh, Peter, who was the basis for the Gospel of Mark, doesn't tell, her, doesn't tell us her name. But the story ends with Judas, one of the named disciples of Jesus. It's striking, that contrast. While he was in Bethany, Reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and put the perfume on his head. Bethany, the name means house of God, is down the hill one day's walk from Jerusalem. And Jesus habitually stayed there. Bethany was where Mary and Martha lived, where Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead, lived. Um, and it was his habit to stay there when he went to Jerusalem. It seems like there's a special uh, meal here in his honor. Simon the leper. Uh, we know that Simon was a Pharisee. The fact that he's called a leper is odd because... Uh, people would not have been invited over to a leper's house for a formal dinner. And so maybe he was somebody that Jesus had healed. Maybe that's why the meal was being held in his honor. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Now we know from the other Gospels that this woman was Mary, of Mary and Martha fame, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. But Mark doesn't name her. She's an unknown woman in Mark's gospel. Why would that be? 
Well, the gospel doesn't say, but it seems that Mark doesn't want to focus on Mary in particular, her specific and very particular relationship with Jesus, or her unique character, uh, personality, and thoughts about Jesus. It seems that Mark is here rather trying to highlight or point to her action as an example to other disciples, to other people in relationship to Jesus. Mark is pointing not to her, Mary, the one who loved Jesus, but rather to her extravagant act of love and devotion as a way of thinking about our own relationship with Jesus. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Nard was rare and precious, uh, imported from India. Uh, this small sealed jar that she broke, once you broke it, you had to use it. You had to anoint people. You couldn't sell it once it was broken. And so it couldn't be resold. Its value was in the moment that you used it. And it's a valid, Christian, it's a valid criticism. A year's wages would be a fabulous amount of money back then. Why wouldn't you use that money to help people? Why would you apparently just waste it on one person in this extravagant act? Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus does not see this as waste. Jesus, rather, sees beauty in what she has done, what she is doing. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. We'll look at some of those elements in a moment, but first, look at verse 9. This is Jesus' summary of what she has just done. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That word at the beginning, truly, is the uh, Greek word um, uh, which we get amen from. And typically, it was used to affirm the truth that somebody else spoke. Somebody says something you agree with, you say amen. We do it with the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus uniquely used it of his own statements. He begins this statement with amen. And it was his way of saying, what I am about to tell you, is spoken with God's authority. It is not dependent on any human agreement, any human authority, any credentials or consent. It is an absolute truth. You can trust this. And what is the absolute truth? Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The example of what Mary does in, in anointing Jesus with nard, this extravagant act of devotion and love to Jesus, is so powerful, is so emblematic of the gospel, of the core Christian message, that it will be memorialized, it will be remembered, and it will be spoken of 
wherever the gospel is preached from that day forward. When Jesus says amen, you should pay attention. And Jesus is saying, pay attention to this act. This is the gospel in action. So what's so compelling about what she does, what Mary does? Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. This act of worship, of love, of devotion is the gospel in action, is beautiful, is worth paying attention to. To contrast what she does with what the other people present say about it, or at least some of them. It seems like the disciples had come to see themselves, or some of them, as some kind of social workers. It was the role of the priests in Jerusalem to take care of the poor, to take care of the sick, the widowed. And they seem to be thinking of Jesus as some kind of new high priest replacing the temple and themselves as priests who are now responsible for the poor and could use this money, the money if the uh, nard had been sold, to aid them in that. It seems like they saw themselves as replacements. Well, that's not how Mary thinks about it. She is demonstrating here that Christianity, faith, is about Jesus and your relationship with him. Not how much you do, not how much you give, not how you take care of the poor. By the way, I think this is a mistake that a lot of people make. It's a mistake that a lot of non-Christians make just as much as Christians. It's been my experience that people overestimate their own goodness, generosity, and general wonderfulness. The Bible does not support that. The Bible says that we are lost souls, that we are sinners, that we need a Savior. We are not wonderful. We need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ, and it all starts with him. It all is about him. You know, when I first came to New York, I uh, used to teach sailing in uh, Battery Park City on the tip of Manhattan. It's right by the financial district. And I would get these young yuppies, um, all keen, many of them Wall Streeters or financial types, all convinced they were going to make millions and billions. And they'd talk about it in the boat. We'd have four or five people in the boat at a time. And invariably, the conversation or the discussion would be, when I make millions or billions, the first thing I'm going to do is take care of the poor, give most of my money away. I'm going to help the needy. I'm going to solve the problems of the world. Only then will I buy my yacht or my private island, my private plane, my fantasy mansion on Lake Cuomo. It was all, I deserve wealth because I'm going to do good things for the poor and then I'm going to take care of myself. And of course we know that that's not how people behave. Rich people in general give a much smaller percentage of their income to the poor or to anybody compared to poor people in general. Mary is pointing us in a different direction. It is not about us and what we do. 
It is about Jesus and his presence and our relationship with him, our response to him. There's a lovely story. It's not recorded by Mark. Uh, This is in the Gospel of Luke. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary knew the significance of Jesus. She had seen him raise her brother, and she devoted her time and energy, her heart, to him, sat at his feet to learn from him. For her, Jesus was not an opportunity to run off and prove her worthiness. Jesus was an opportunity for her to pay attention to his worthiness. Now, some of you will argue, well, doesn't uh, Jesus also say you have to love the neighbor and you have to take care of the needy? Yes, he does say that. But it first starts with relationship with him. The most important commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's like the admonition on an airline. In the event event of an emergency, first put on your own oxygen mask before you help others. Because you are useless unless you have that oxygen. It's the same in the church. It's the same in Christianity. First, focus on your relationship with Christ, with Jesus, with God. Only then will you have the strength, the ability, or even the inclination to spend yourself in the service to others. If you read the Bible, you will see again and again, people are called by God. It happens with the prophets all the time. They come to God. First they come to him. And then he sends them to minister to his people. But first... You have to have that relationship, that commitment, the worship, the love, the devotion, all your strength, all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, before you can be useful, before you can do anything. Jesus did not set up a health clinic, though he healed every person who came to him. He didn't set up trade schools for those who didn't have a job. He didn't set up a social security administration. A good thing, by the way. What did he do? He poured his life and his energy, his time. Every moment of his time before he went to the cross was devoted to training and preparing his disciples. He focused on their relationship with him, their understanding of who he was. It all starts with Jesus. You know, one thing I've noticed 
is that when people first become a Christian or they, they get excited about Christian, this used to happen all the time when I was in Manhattan at Redeemer. I see it happen here in Hoboken. People get excited. They want to serve God. They immediately start doing some kind of ministry. And often, because of their enthusiasm, they jump in with both feet. And it doesn't last very long. Just existing in the city, just living in the city, for yourself, especially if you have a family, if you have children, it's hard to take on the problems of somebody else in addition to that is a huge challenge. And we've got to be very careful about taking on more than we can bear. It happens with pastors as well. Pastor, urban pastors burn out all the time because they focus on the needs of other people and they wither and die inside. First, love your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That is not a trivial undertaking. And only then, try to take care of other people. It is much better when you come across somebody in need, somebody in crisis, somebody whose life is in turmoil, to be a constant small light shining in the darkness as a reference point, as a stable point in the turmoil, than it is jumping in and trying to solve all their problems and then quitting a couple of months later because you're exhausted. First, put on your own oxygen mask. Only then, try to help other people. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. The weakest, the most corrupt, wayward, and scandalous aspect of the Christian church has always been the human beings that make it up. The same has been true right from the beginning. Remember, Jesus recruited Judas. Before they met Jesus, there was nothing about the disciples that was particularly heroic, particularly admirable, particularly special. They were very ordinary people. In fact, the Pharisees repeatedly were shocked at the company that Jesus kept. Drunks, gluttons, tax collectors, prostitutes, outcasts. The church is not comprised of good people. It is not comprised of heroic people. Jesus was betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. Peter, the rock of whose faith Jesus said he would build his church, denied him three times. We're going to see that in a, moment, uh, in a future Sundays. All his disciples ran away as soon as Jesus was arrested. The human organization that he created and spent his ministry training and mentoring and living and eating with and pouring his life into, it all blew up at the first challenge. They were weak. They were cowards. They didn't understand. There's only one person in the Christian church who is not weak, who is not corrupt, who is a genuine hero, 
and that is Jesus Christ. And he's the one person that makes the Christian church worthwhile. And it's the only reason that the Christian church continues to exist. If you read church history, it is a squalid business. And yet the church is still here. You know, we'll see at the end, when uh, Jesus was crucified, his disciples ran away. They cowered. And yet when Jesus was resurrected and he gave the disciples his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the disciples went back to the center of Jerusalem and Peter stood up and preached the first Christian sermon with the power of the Holy Spirit and 3,000 people became Christians and the church began. It was not because Peter was suddenly heroic. It was because of the gift of the Holy Spirit by Jesus Christ. And that's why when you look at the church, you see ordinary, weak, vulnerable people. But they are united by a spirit. The Christian church is not a social institution. It is a supernatural, spirit-filled temple of God. And that's its significance. That's its power and strength. And it depends on Christ being its head. And if you don't have a relationship with that head, everything else is irrelevant. Nothing else matters. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing. You know, Mark doesn't name her. He wants to focus on her action, her act of devotion and love and worship. But Mary was a particular person. She loved Jesus because he had raised her brother. She sat at his feet listening undistracted and paid attention to what he said. Somehow, and you know, Jesus wasn't quiet about this, he mentioned it many times, she knew what was going to happen to him. She knew she wasn't going to have him much longer. It's something that his disciples didn't seem to fully understand, but somehow she knew. So what was she to do about that? A single woman at a time when women had very little power or say in the world, what could she do? Verse 8. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body before to prepare for my, bed, my burial. A year's wages. A fabulous sum in those days. The sealed bottle would have been a precious heirloom, perhaps an inheritance. Perhaps even Mary's dowry that she could use to get married. Her only way forward as a single woman in that, in that society at that time. And yet she pours it all out on him, on Jesus. John's Gospel records that she poured out so much that she had to mop up the excess that dripped off Jesus' feet with her hair. An extraordinary and outrageous thing for a woman to do at all, let alone in public in front of people with a man that she wasn't related to. Clearly, Mary loved Jesus. And she didn't care about anybody else or what they thought or what they said. In pouring out this nard on him, she was pouring out her wealth, giving him her best, the most precious thing she had. This was a pure act of worship. 
devotion and love. Mary was doing what she could. She was expressing her love of Jesus with all her heart, and with all her soul, and with all her mind, and with all her strength. And Jesus said, that's a beautiful thing. Jesus said, that was and is Christian gospel beautiful, pouring out on him everything she had. Now there's one more thing. She poured nard out on him, which is strange. Nard was a perfume. It was used for celebration and festivals. It was used for weddings. It was used to anoint guests and bridal parties and brides and grooms. Why did she pour that out if she was preparing Jesus for his death? Did Mary know what she was doing? Did Mary see why Jesus was going to the cross? She sat at his feet and listened to him a lot. Did Mary just hope beyond hope because she had seen Jesus raise her dead brother? Somehow, she saw the good news in Jesus' death, the gospel. Because the Christian gospel is that Jesus Christ, when he goes to the cross and he goes to the grave, defeats death and rises victorious. The Christian gospel is that if we love and devote ourselves to him, trust him, worship him, put our faith in him, follow him, then he will lead us through that same death when it happens to us. The Bible ends in the book of Revelation, and there's this passage. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the Christian church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, that's Christians. Blessed are those who invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is on his way to the cross, we're going to see that. Somehow Mary, in anointing him with nard, was pointing us, as the Christian gospel does, through that death, to that great marriage feast. We have a glimpse of it right here. If we put our trust in him, if we believe him, if we follow him, we are invited to, we will come to the Lord's table at that wedding feast. We will become part of the bridal party. We will become part of the family of God. That's the Christian gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have the example of Mary, an example of pure love and devotion and worship. She gave of her best. Lord, show us how to worship you. Show us how to give you our best. Show us what it means to be devoted to you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.